Welcome back to another episode of the Equity Matters Podcast. This is your host, Addis JB3. And as I'm recording this, it is actually Juneteenth. So I want to just pause and acknowledge the importance of this day, regardless of if it's been identified as a federal holiday or not, but to take a moment to recognize the formalized emancipation of all enslaved individuals within the United States. That is not to say that there are no longer ramifications of slavery or there are not other ways of institutionalized racism impacting individuals, but I do want to just pause for a second and say happy Juneteenth as we celebrate the opportunity and the advancement that we have experienced over the past nearly 200 years, but also recognizing how just so far we need to go. And with that, I think it segues nicely into today's conversation and what happens behind the scenes with colleges and universities and other academic institutions when there is an issue of racial unrest or racial injustice on campuses. One of the things that comes to mind is during my time at Michigan State, there were actually several moments where there were nooses found hanging on doors or hanging from the ceiling and universities have a responsibility to respond to that. And so we do have a great conversation lined up with Dr. Brandon Elmore, who is going to break down not only what happens behind the scenes, but how do we support black administrators and black faculty in that experience? Because in many cases, what you find, these institutions want to bring on people of color to fulfill whatever their spoken or unspoken diversity requirements are. And then we find ourselves in situations like this and they want the answers and they want the answers immediately. And they get the answers sometimes and they don't do anything with it. And so there's consequences that come with that. And so I'm excited today to introduce you all to Dr. Brandon Elmore, who's going to really pick all of these things apart. So, Dr. Elmore, you mind introducing yourself to the listeners today? Yes, thank you. Well, hello, James, um, and greetings. Um, I first want to say thank you for your time and dedication to this series. Um, I genuinely appreciate you even considering me and being a part of it. Um, I certainly want to extend my gratitude to your following um, for choosing to listen to this conversation, you know, and all that's happening, um, which we spoke of a moment ago um, throughout the world today, um, all of you and everyone could have chosen to engage elsewhere. So I remain completely humbled by this opportunity to share this time and space with you, uh, your network and community. Um, I think going into a little bit more about myself, um, I'm Dr. Brandon D. Elmore, as you stated. Um, and while I'm originally from North Carolina, I'm currently based in the DMV area, um, where I serve as a postdoctoral associate within the Center for Diversity and Inclusion in Higher Education at the University of Maryland College Park. So what kind of led you to this work? I know a lot of folks who get into the DEI space realize that, that it takes a certain heart for the work. And so I'd be curious to hear kind of your trajectory that led you there. Um, the way I got into the work 
the work of diversity, equity, and inclusion, or DEI, as we say in higher ed, um, I would say that relies on my own lived experiences. Um, I'm a self-identifying Black gay male, and that is intentional being that I, um, someone who is of mixed races and represents as what is culturally normed as Black or African-American, I represent a, uh, a multitude of race and ethnicities um, that have been both misidentified and misinterpreted in our society. So I say all that to say, um, with the many facets of visual and social diversity that I represent, I had unique levels of access and privilege in seeing that diversity situated in various platforms. Um, having went to an HBCU, the illustrious Fayetteville State University uh, for my undergraduate studies, um, I got a degree in communication, um, then attending University of Cincinnati, a public urban, predominantly white um, institution located in the Midwest for my master's in communication um, to more recently completing my doctoral studies in higher education at Penn State University, which is a research one state related predominantly white institution located in the rural center county of Pennsylvania. Um, through those lived experiences, I developed an identity as a scholar practitioner um, in the academic community. I would also include the opportunities that I had to maybe live and travel in different countries where I witnessed a myriad of experiences related to racism, discrimination, and oppression that were in some ways outside of myself, but still at the same time, they were very connected to my own identity development. And throughout that journey, um, I kind of made it my personal and professional goal to help others navigate their identities in ways that are supportive, engaging, and in some ways authentic to themselves. Um, so therefore, I find myself in the work of DEI. <laughs> I can say for certain that many universities, I'm thinking of Big Ten in particular, I'm thinking of my alma mater, they had to respond to issues of racism on campus. And in many cases, what we see publicly is, you know, trying to appease students, Black students in particular, saying that, you know, some things are beyond their control. But I'd be curious to hear from your insight, what are the typical responses for those type of issues? Specifically, when it comes to racial injustices, universities and academic institutions respond with a uh, crisis communication plan. And that typically follows the organizational norms and traditions that are created, um, sustained and institutionalized by a structure of whiteness. Um, in 2016, I conducted a discourse analysis, a critical discourse analysis on a communication plan that was enacted by administrators at the University of Cincinnati, where a black male, Mr. Samuel DeBose had been murdered by a white university police officer. Um, in my interrogation of this communication plan, where if you were to look this up, it's in my master's thesis. So you can actually see where um, the traditional ways in which organizations, even higher ed institutions, respond to crises using strategies that are adopted from public relations. And those um, include framing, which is to control the context in which the crisis can be seen. Um, agenda setting, which is similar to framing, but more focused on setting a narrative through public opinion. And lastly, the strategy of priming, um, which is in particular to this situation, relied on public discourse around police brutality to deflect the institutional responsibility and in situating a crisis um, as an issue outside of the campus. 
So with that crisis communication plan, most people or most institutions typically rely on the aspect of public relations to deflect the responsibility in which they had, um, whatever the racial injustice that took place may have been in their part and how they would respond. I know for me, I often wonder about faculty of color when it comes to situations like this or administrators of color, because being tied to an organization that in that moment is responsible for attending to perhaps their greatest stakeholder, I'm using that in air quotes, their students. What role do black faculty or faculty of color play in that discourse? I mean, how are they supported when it comes to having these very difficult conversations? That's another really great question. And I like how you frame the aspect of stakeholders, students of stakeholders. Um, because I have a background, my background as far as practice comes within the light of student affairs. So around that question um, of what roles do black faculty um, or administrators play and how are they supported? Um, my previous example um, of institutional identity in framing that racial crisis, um, further research that I did at the University of Cincinnati actually highlighted a history of distrust, um, distrust from people of color that initiated, um, it was initiated by a past that dated back to around um, 1997, where a male by the name of, a black male um, who was mentally ill by the name of Lorenzo Collins was murdered after being shot three times by the university police um, in 1997. So, and if in saying that this type of heinous behavior, it sounds familiar, uh, the reason is because instances of racism and injustice are not isolated occurrences. As I mentioned before, crisis communication um, and communication in general at higher education institutions follow the norms of whiteness. And this is true for most organizations across the nation. And as history tells us, um, so does the organizational structures and therefore the identities that are within. So in particular to, uh, or in particular when we think of the identities of predominantly white institutions or PWIs, we actually see that these structures too follow the norms. Um, and so for black faculty and administrator, administrators, I'm sorry, um, they actually follow the norms as well. So you can start to see statistics of uh, less than 8% of black leaders represented in positions of administration in comparison to the dominant identity of white leaders at around 80%. And with that said, Black faculty and administrative identities, whereas identities are defined as um, the social positioning of self and others, are faced with the dilemmas of a minoritized experience. Also, um, most of the time when um, these individuals are in positions of leadership, they're positioned to handle um, or lead research issues that are related to diversity and um, crises, you know? So when crises take place that involve broader racial tensions of society, they are expected to respond and react following those traditional norms that I spoke of and the processes of the institutional space that they're in, um, which again are essentially perpetuated values of whiteness, if you really wanted to give it a name. 
Um, so in reaction to that, I have argued that the issue becomes an incongruence between identities of Black administrators and faculty within their institutional communities. And because of their minoritized positionings, they begin to experience internal oppression and discrimination, which gets acted out as what we call microaggressions, um, perceptions of lack of self-efficacy, um, isolation, cultural taxation, um, and just overall dissonance between one's identity and a devaluing in their overall health and well-being as well. I, I love, I love yet hate at the same time, kind of this relationship that we see in whiteness being centered, because when I think of what you're explaining in academia, it's really no different than what we see in healthcare. It's no different than what we see in state government. And it just seems to be like this, this through line. I mean, we talk about whiteness. I, tend to jump to institutional and structural racism. There is this relationship though that I really wanna pull out when it comes to the culture of institutions. And so thinking about how if you have institutionalized whiteness, how do we create policies and practices that decenter that or we remove it altogether? Hmm. That's a really great question. I've said that about all of the questions that you've had, but this one in particular, because there's many ways of going about it, right? So there are a lot of strategies and responses that could be enacted to decenter or um, sort of bridge this gap and establish a community of practice or culture that is inclusive. Um, in response to policies, it starts with things like hiring practices or uh, restructuring of strategic plans to include perceptions and experiences of minoritized individuals, um, maybe establishing resources and creating pipelines that bring value to the undervalued sectors of the educational community, um, more specifically graduates or scholars um, and practitioners for minority serving institutions. Um, and most importantly, um, attending to the histories of higher education institutions and becoming critical of those norms and policies that perpetuate the system and structure of whiteness um, that inevitably single out people of color. Um, regarding practices, I would go on maybe a little bit of a tangent here, but speak about my own research, um, where I argue that we should seek towards developing a sense of congruence because um, those identities that are situated within, especially people of color, as we're talking about black administrators, are incongruent to the spaces of predominantly white institutions. So um, establishing congruency between those identities, which can increase participation and representation of black faculty and administrators um, and counter the negative perceptions of fairness and relationships, and as well as their experiences, would increase the overall health and well-being of not only the individual, but the space in which they're in, right? So all of the benefits towards the institutional community come about when we all feel included um, and our individual performance increases which in turn enhances the performance of the collective institutional community. So if we're all feeling good and we're all feeling included into the space and there's congruency among our identities, um, we're able to lead better. We're able to make more effective decisions. We're able to be a part of the decision-making process and therefore the institutional community benefits from that as a whole. We're starting to transition into the solution a bit. And when I saw your name pop up and I started doing background research and really formulating the questions, you, you do a lot of research around identity negotiation. What exactly is that for people who are not familiar? 
Yes, thank you. Um, thank you for looking me up as well. <laughs> it's, not really, it's, it's not too often that I hear that, I'm not gonna lie. Um, but no, I did go off. So my tangent earlier was a little bit about my research and talking about congruency. And I definitely wanna have the opportunity to explain that. Um, so more specifically, my research does engage with the process of identity negotiation as an individual strategy for black administrators or leaders to develop um, a sense of congruency. So identify, um, identifying, I guess, a definition is very difficult. Um, it's difficult in the sense of there are a lot of different disciplines and schools of thought that would um, define identity negotiation. I come from a background in communication um, and critical cultural scholarship. So um, critical cultural scholarship um, defines identity negotiation as the process of establishing who is who while becoming and being within interaction, institution, or organizations. Um, and we act this process out or perform our identities while seeking to achieve congruency through three different modes of our identity development process. Um, those modes include um, coherence, connectedness, and agency. So in a nutshell, it's basically um, who you are, who you see yourself as, and who you are socially constructed to be within an institutional organization. In trying to find balance amongst those identities and being able to also be present and also do the work, what does that look like? I mean, do you have to suppress different parts in order to function or are there certain, certain strategies that you can identify? I think in that question and the reason why it came about is because that was, um, you hit the holy grail, right? Of like where I was at in my dissertation process. Um, I found this um, point of contention among my own identity um, as someone who presents as Black and understands my um, educational experience from an HBCU experience, right? And coming into the space of understanding leadership, I was pulling from theory um, examples and models that were built for dominant identities, so white leadership right? Um, mostly male who come in with this framework, um, what we call the, the great man frame, um, and understanding leadership in that way. So in itself, that question asked a lot. That was the, <laughs> the impetus for my research and uh, trying to understand, well, how can you find congruency with your identity? What parts of you are really authentic in this space? And how can you make them be the parts of you that help you to um, perform well, to be efficient in this role or um, act in this function of this job. And for me, I think that whole journey to um, finding that out was how my dissertation developed. And it really changed my understanding and outlook. So in response to how one goes about that, how you find, uh, I guess, congruency in that, in those identities and how they all um, work together in tandem. Um, I think it's really contextual to the individual, right? And I know that that's like, a, uh, <laughs> that's a really qualitative response. This is like, it's contextual, but it is because of what I find is while even um, I was looking at, for instance, black administrative identities, um, cause I was aspiring and at the time, you know, had interest in leadership, my own self and I held the identity as a black person. Um, each person who is black identifies on a spectrum, right? And we all have intersecting parts of our identities that 
and previous experiences that we may have had or understandings and perceptions and worldviews, we are all going to choose to respond differently to different situations. So within that, it is very contextual. Um, and I appreciate that aspect in my research as well, because that showed me and is something that I hopefully contributed to the literature, but also to the academic space is that identity development is not linear. Um, and the intersecting parts of our identity is, are very important to the development process. So understanding those parts, the many different parts and how they work together, I think that is, that's the important part there, right? Um, trying to figure out um, how one goes about it and being successful is not the goal, but how one navigates that and how they negotiate their identities and the ways in which they do that, that is successful to them individually, provides insight to other communities. This takes me back to Psych 101 when I probably should have been paying a lot more attention um, to like the id, the ego, and the superego. Like there, these are three things with often competing uh, needs. And so I guess my, my next question is really about how can institutions support Black administrators knowing that this is a part of the literature? Like it, it's not necessarily just something that's emerging all of a sudden, knowing that there's this disconnect in this lack of congruence, how can institutions better support individuals in this space? Yes. Um, wow. <laughs> Let me see if I can summarize my dissertation here. <laughs> right? Um, but no, I would say, and I will, I will defer to my dissertation because um, I really, I stand by the, the data that was there and the experiences because they were not of my own. Um, I did a qualitative study that was um, you know, on black leaders at a specific predominantly white institution. And I provided their counter narratives to the master narrative of what identity and identity development of a leader was supposed to look like, how the institution presented their identities and job descriptions and such. Um, I was able to really capture the essence of what their experience was as a Black leader in this space. So the data and the, the research kind of speaks from their voice and not my own. So I think it's okay and safe in this space to really speak about my dissertation. So what can institutions do to support Black administrators or um, in a sense, um, from my analysis on the processes of identity negotiation, um, support their identity development, right? First, I would say create, um, maybe seek and institutionalize opportunities to establish coherence. Um, coherence is a mode which I spoke of earlier in identity negotiation. And what this looks like for institutions is promoting a culture in which organizational roles and the behaviors associated with them are more clearly delineated. Um, this means getting back to those job descriptions and the roles um, with an equity-minded lens to ensure that we're not vaguely defining um, positions with a dominant worldview, but rather a more inclusive and racially aware stance that attends to the histories of exclusion of minoritized identities. Second, I would posit the need and attention for um, developing a sense of connectedness. Um, that's also another mode of identity negotiation. And within that, especially for Black administrators, right? 
Um, often at predominantly white institutions, as I mentioned before, the likelihood that you will see a fully representational community of people who look like you um, while serving in positions of leadership, if you are a minority, is minimal. Not to mention most of these institutions are in the middle of nowhere or in the most rural part of a state like Pennsylvania. <laughs> so finding connectedness in a community outside of the college town where we lived presents an added tax on the person who is essentially brought into the space to fill um, what is called compositional diversity or increase the inclusivity of the institution. So it is an institutional responsibility that if you want to achieve inclusive excellence, which is a buzzword in higher education, um, you have to invest in the external community for the sake of those who you are bringing in, the individuals who you're recruiting and hiring. Um, so such as um, using resources, resources to contract with socially responsible companies and vendors that bolster marginalized identities. And this gets deep into um, issues around memorandum of understandings and lots of organizational language um, that gets away from your question, but essentially it is the role of the institution in creating an inclusive environment and um, there are internal strategies for doing so. Um, lastly, I would add that institutions should adopt practices and norms that create opportunities for leaders from minority groups to um, achieve high levels of agency. Um, this is both a cultural and structural recommendation because agency is achieved through perceptions and value established for competence as well as self-expression. What I mean by that is particularly at predominantly white institutions, uh, black leaders are expected to operate and present as competent under the norms of a racialized space. And I don't think I have to remind you here um, because I've stated it time and time again that those spaces are dominated by norms of whiteness. So um, take for example, an individual who is black and attended a historically black college university, maybe for their undergraduate degrees. And then they get hired and promoted to a vice president or vice provost of student affairs. Um, and the dominant identity, the student demographic there of predominantly white institutions tends to be situated um, at about, I think the number is 70% for it to be considered a predominantly white institution, it would have 70% white students. So the norms of whiteness um, in that space are allowed, they're allowable, right? Um, they work well under the functions of the institution. But that black administrator, while they're competent enough to perform the functions of that role or their position, they also have a background and identity that is connected to other value systems. And um, it's essentially where the internal identity negotiation processes are enacted. Um, that's what we were talking about before, a little bit about that saliency of how you compile those identities together, right? Um, and even more specifically to leaders um, is basically this review of performance from supervisors who also hold a dominant identity. So under performance reviews where black administrators or this black administrator would be under scrutiny under the constructs that were not created with their identities in mind. So really being intentional about those three things, um, coherence, connectedness and agency and ensuring that we have this equity-minded lens that's really focal to the understanding and attending to the histories that are racially aware of Black administrators, right? So we're not just bringing them there and telling them to fix all things diversity and having them respond to um, all things diversity, but we're actually creating this diverse environment that is inclusive for them to really be um, connected to and um, develop a sense of agency within. 
Have you seen anywhere that gets it right? And when I say gets it right, talking about creating a, a culture where that kind of feedback is accepted. I mean, it's adopted into like quality assurance or quality improvement. And I'm saying that from more of a, a government lens, but being able to formally say what we're doing is perpetuating inequity. We are a barrier to inclusion. Have you seen anywhere that gets that right or understands how to do it? In higher education, <laughs> it's going to be a definite no. Um, this is something funny, and we joke about this a lot in higher education. There's like memes and gifs out there now, right? That state, um, they'll have this like picture of someone and or something like somebody saying, oh, well, get me here to do this research. And we want to talk about, we want you to tell us what we're doing wrong when it comes to DEI, but then come here and be unhappy or something of the sort because they don't really want to be critical of what they're doing wrong. They just want you to tell them what they can do to make it right. Um, and then all of that is lip service. Um, they have, like you said, it comes from an organizational stance. You were speaking of government, but it really does come from that. So they have these buzzwords, they have these checklists that they have funding um, pools and they create um, budgets that are designed to enhance whatever, whatever, whatever this is, um, this imperative at the moment, right? It's maybe teaching service and research. Um, but when we think about inclusive excellence and we think about equity, institutions of higher education don't want to be told that they're not doing this right. And if anything, they would have, um, you'll see, you've seen this before when we talked about this in the beginning, maybe like in their crisis communication plan, a paragraph or a statement around diversity. Um, so when things are happening in the world or in the nation and they feel like, oh, well, some of our constituents, as you named before, uh, our stakeholders, the students, you know, they represent this identity. Some of the faculty, the staff here represent this identity. So they're a part of our community. So we're gonna use this, this statement here, um, but the actual budget and the structure and the funding does not ever get directed towards that. So I would say, no, I have not seen an institution of higher education um, that has done this successfully. Um, not at the moment, but we're, th we're there. I'm hopeful <laughs> we're getting there. Yeah, I was, I was hoping it was a pie in the sky shot. Let's talk about the role that you play in the solution. I mean, I know some of your work is around mental health supports. What are you doing specifically to advocate for equity in your space? Yes, um, in my new position at the Center for Diversity and Inclusion in Higher Education, um, I get to uh, produce scholarship, I get to consult and engage in research that is intentionally focused on inclusive excellence. Um, my colleagues have worked as chief diversity officers and student affairs leaders at predominantly white institutions, and they have extensive experience, experience and backgrounds um, and networks with institutional leaders. And that allows me um, an opportunity to provide insight to institutions in unique ways that where I'm able to um, contribute my knowledge and experience on diverse leadership identity development. Um, I would also mention here again uh, my dissertation. I was very intentional in the writing of my dissertation, um, where I created a sort of guide that was tailored for Black administrators. Um, so I offered specific recommendations for navigating. Um, our identities in ways that look past coping mechanisms and finding comfort in just being, but instead adopting strategies for us as professionals to grow and become the best versions of ourselves. And in doing so in a way that is um, conducive to our own personal development as well. So in regards to mental health, I just think overall, like my work, it lends itself to the domain of mental health because 
I specifically interrogate identity development. We spoke a little bit earlier about psychology. Um, so when you're talking and interrogating identity development of individuals whose identities have been socially constructed in unhealthy ways in environments that um, have been unhealthy to us, um, again, I understand the definition of identity to be a social positioning of self and others. And therefore, as a young Black professional with layered experiences, my identity is understood to be socially constructed through interactions and relations with others too. And in the spaces of dominance that I have been in, such as um, the academic academy um, or the academy, um, the workplace and beyond, I think I have begun to notice more how um, I used to show up feeling racialized. Um, and I started to consider um, what are the effects and what effects does this have on my students or members of my community, you know, and questioning how we can heal so that we are not suffering or surviving in these spaces. We are expected to at least in some ways, or we seek to thrive in, right? So we're not just being, but we're actually becoming um, those better versions of ourselves. So Dr. Elmore, how can people keep up with you, with your work, with understanding, I mean, being more versed in identity negotiation, is there a way that, aside from Googling, because I, I was able to learn a lot, um, how can people keep up with you? Sure. Um, okay. Well, I don't want to be that person that does those shameful plugs. And starting to list all of those things, right? But um, I think something that may have been left out in this, um, but I also mentioned about this healing process. For me personally, um, I practice yoga since 2012, um, and not as a means of physical uh, fitness, but more so as a practice, right? And that's really helped me in understanding my own identity, especially in this racialized space and how I show up. Um, it helped me with it throughout my dissertation process. It helped me as a professional. Um, so I do that. Um, I kind of have a, a little practice that I do where I engage with people virtually now. Um, so I do virtual yoga sessions geared towards healing racial trauma and healing in general. And for that, um, I was using a website, but I'm more connected to some other spaces. So I'll hold off on that for a moment and just list my email because people have been reaching out to me directly and beings that were virtual, we're in a different space. Um, so it's definitely um, easy to get to. It's Elmore, E-L-M-O-R-E, Brandon, B-R-A-N-D-E-N at gmail.com. Um, reach out directly for any services around yoga. Um, and then the shameful plugs come. Um, being that I'm new to my current role, I'll utilize this space as a platform to plug the Center for Diversity and Inclusion in Higher Education. Um, so you use Google, but please everyone search us on Google. You can also find the Center on Twitter at UMDCDIHE, um, where the website is also linked. We offer consulting for higher education institutions across the US and abroad to address issues of diversity, equity, and inclusion. Um, also my dissertation, um, Identity Negotiation Among Black Administrators at Predominantly White Institutions is linked on my LinkedIn. So just search Brandon, B-R-A-N-D-E-N, D-Elmore. Um, and those are ways to get connected and stay connected. I'm always down to talk scholarship um, you know, just kind of have random conversation about life. 
my work beings that I work with in diversity, equity, and inclusion um, in higher education, but I interrogate identity and the development of identity, it tends to be uh, like, you know, a crutch of all my conversations. So I'm always open to explore any topic, any conversation. <laughs> well, Dr. Elmore, I definitely appreciate the time and the discussion. I, the work that you're doing is invaluable. What I'm trying to do with Equity Matters is really elevate and amplify the voices of people doing the work across different sectors. And I imagine there's no way that we could see the headway that we do in higher ed without your contribution. So this is me giving you your, your flowers. Thank you for your work and also thank you for your time. Thank you so much. First of all, I want to thank Dr. Elmore for dropping countless gems on what he's learned and what he's seen out in the field when it comes to advancing equity, creating inclusive, truly inclusive environments and moving beyond this notion of just doing the work to fulfill some statutory obligation or some regulatory requirement, because that, that's what it's really about. Because as long as we keep things surface level, it's always going to be performative. If Until we actually embed these policies and procedures and practices into our DNA of our institutions and organizations, we're going to continue to be in the same situations that we're in. I do this talk where I mention the fact that you can you can say these things, you can put out pressers, you can do equity statements, but until you change the values and you change the individuals and you create a culture that's truly inclusive, it's all for show. It's all theater. And people know that people pick up on lip service very quickly and you're gaslighting folks. Like, let's just put it out there immediately that it's, it's manipulation thinking that institutions are going to change, that things are going to be better when you have no intentions in the long term of changing things. So just a few things to think about as we head into July, it's a new month naturally. So we've got new content coming. You'll see soon who we'll have on the podcast for the month of July. Really excited as we actually wrap up some of these academic conversations and we're going to shift things a little bit. And other announcements. The Equity Matters Social Justice Academy is coming along so, so nicely. I am torn, though, how I want to open it up for registration. I'm supposed to be working on my website. Shout out to Hayden Dawes, who stays on me about it. I do have a very generic draft website. It's not the greatest, but it'll work. But I want to make sure that people have the ability to register. So planning on that for early August. Um, it's going to be good. That's all, that's all I want to say. I don't want to tease too much. I just want you to know that a lot of thought went into the objectives, into the entire experience. Folks who have seen me facilitate before know that I'm, I'm really deep into the experience of the session. So I want to make sure that people take away action items. Like it's, it's not just you come learn. There's a call to action with everything that we do. Also follow us on social media. We continue to grow, which is definitely a good thing. I've seen it in the podcast listens now where we're getting some of the highest numbers that we've ever gotten. And 
thank you. Continue to follow, continue to share. Let people know what we're doing here at Equity Matters, why it's important. I've been thinking for a while about how do I change the way that I end the episodes and I realize maybe I shouldn't. Maybe I just leave it alone. So you already know, equity matters. <laughs>